0: Seattle.
1: I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, Francois Clemens. Would you mind singing? There are many ways to say I love you.
0: Lord have mercy. I love those. There are many ways. There
1: are many ways to
0: say I love you. There are many ways to say I care
1: about you. Francois Clemens is most famous for playing Officer Clemens on Mr. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which he did for 25 years. One of the most famous images of Francois and Mr. Rogers is the two of them sitting on the set, with their feet in a little plastic baby pool. And at the time, that was huge to have a white man and a black man with their feet in the same pool. And Mr. Rogers helped him dry his feet when he got out of the pool. Francois is also an opera singer. He won a Grammy for a recording of Porky and Bess and was director of the Martin Luther King Spiritual Choir at Middlebury College until his retirement. He just released a new book called Officer Clemens, A Memoir. Many words to say, I
0: love
1: you. Oh, it's so beautiful <laughs> to hear you sing. Thank you.
0: Oh, you're very welcome, my dear. You're very welcome. I love that song, but I um, too. I sang it too much.
1: <laughs> yeah, I but, bet. Yeah. I bet. Also on today's show, the Soul Food Scholar. Adrian Miller. He shares the history of beloved African-American soul foods like okra and chitlins. And we talk about how race factors in to how you make your cornbread. Some like it's sweet, others say it should never have sugar.
2: So yeah, that's one of the hottest debates slash arguments in kind of soul food and Southern food. And actually, I believe it's one of the dividing lines.
1: Cornbread is such a big debate that I called in a second expert, North Carolina-based food writer Kathleen Purvis who won awards for her article about race and cornbread in the Charlotte Observer. So
3: many of the white Southerners I knew were
1: so damn defensive about it. But first, my conversation with Francois Clemens. Francois Clemens is currently quarantining in his home in Vermont. Hello. Hello. How are you? I am good. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm just trying to uh, make sure I've got the right... So I had gotten this email from Francois's oh, publicist before our interview, and she said that he was, quote, screen, getting cute it's for it's me. Crazy. But then we had some trouble getting the cameras to work. And I dressed for you. I know, I heard. I was like, oh, he's getting cute? I can't <laughs> wait for this. <laughs> I threw something on. This is terrible. From 1968 to 1993, Francois played Officer Clemens on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. So many Americans only saw him wearing a police uniform, not the colorful West African clothing and jewelry that he prefers. Francois was a young man in his 20s when Fred Rogers saw him perform at a church in Pittsburgh. You have described him as a surrogate father. Can you talk about how that relationship developed between you two?
0: So when I met Fred, I did a concert at Third Presbyterian Church. So there I was singing this special program I had prepared. Where I would do. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there? When
1: Francois they crucified, proceeded to sing me every single song that he sang the first time Fred Rogers heard his voice. Let
0: us break bread together on our knees. Let us break bread together on our knees. When I fall, All the angels roll the stone away. Was on that Easter Sunday
1: morning When the angels rolled the stone away I love this. It's my own personal concert. (laughs) Yes, of course.
0: See what what I do for you? I do the the concert and I dress for you.
1: I know. And what do I give you? Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what do you give me? After the concert, Fred Rogers approached Francois.
0: He looked at me. He was so sincere can we get together sometime? I thought, well, yeah, you know, but what do you want? I can tell you right now. I was a little suspicious. And he said, there's a wonderful restaurant and we can go to that restaurant and and have um, a wonderful lunch and we can have a discussion. I have some things on on my mind. And I, be honest with you, I thought, well, what the heck could he have on his mind that concerns me? Because I never met him.
1: But Mr. Rogers and Francois went out to lunch. There's something
0: remarkable about the sports field, is what I'm calling it, around this man. He had a presence that you couldn't quite describe. You knew something unique was, was on your path. And were you going to experience it or were you going to try to get away from it? And I was I was too curious to get away from it. So I sat and we talked. There was something so warm and so accepting about this man, I began to accept him so totally. I gave up all of my defenses, and I surrendered to this friendship.
1: After lunch, Mr. Rogers took him to the television station where he produced his show.
0: He reached into a, a brown suitcase, and he took out King Friday's puppet and put it on his hand, and he began to talk to me. Hello, Le Francois. How are you? Welcome to our neighborhood. <laughs> it was that kind of thing. And then he'd do Queen Sarah. We're very glad to have you in the neighborhood. You have a beautiful voice, and I love to hear you sing. So he was doing all that stuff, and I thought, What the blankety is this? (laughs) You know, he caught me totally off guard because I grew up in the ghetto. In the ghetto, black men, Spanish, Italian, whoever lives there, they play dice, you know, they gamble, drink, they curse, sometimes they fight, and they beat their wives. They're not always pleasant, the things that they do, but the things they do are what we would call masculine and. I was not ready for my, this new man that I met to um, start acting like the children. I thought, well, this is not very manly. I became very suspicious about those puppets. I told him about that later. and He laughed. He thought it was very funny because he had had lots of puppets as a kid, and he saw no reason that he couldn't keep them to, to do them on his special television program. I think he felt very natural about that.
1: As they continued to spend time together and get closer and closer, Francois trusted Fred completely. Francois is gay, and he came out to Mr. Rogers, but remained mostly closeted to the world. It was the late 1960s, and Fred didn't think a gay character would work on his show. But Francois says he understood, and Fred Rogers became a true father figure to Francois. His own dad was abusive during his childhood, so Fred Rogers was the father he never had. And he was the first man who told you that he loved you, right?
0: Oh, yes. Yes. I came back to the studio and I was standing in the shadows. I listened to what he was saying and he got to the end of the passage that he says all the time. You're very special to me and you know how? Just by being you and I love you just the way you are. Well, my dear, I was standing and I swear to God he was looking right in my eyes into my soul. I thought, well, no, Francois, you're so egotistical. You think he's talking to you. And I walked off the stage to the point where he was coming off. And we stopped in front of each other. And I said, Fred, were you talking to me? And he said, yes, I've been talking to you for two years, but you heard me today. Hmm. Well, my dear, I I became a a wet Kleenex. I was (laughs) I (laughs) dissolved in his arms. I was so shocked and so happy, and I thought, my God, this man loves me. I must be somebody. I had never, ever experienced such pure, pure, unadulterated love. Finally, my prayers have been answered that somebody loved Francois. Oh, it was the most wonderful experience in in my life. I've not had anything quite like it.
1: At some point, Mr. Rogers offered Francois a role on his PBS show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. He asked him to play a police officer, a helper to children. And your initial reaction was, why would I ever play a police officer as a Black man? Can you tell that story?
0: All of us kids in the Black ghetto there in Youngstown, we knew, don't mess with the cops because they will kill you. And my uncles and my aunts and uh, my mother gave me this speech on how to stay alive. Don't look him in the eye. Don't say anything. Don't initiate anything. So, when I got to the office there and Fred pulled this uniform, I said, Fred, do you realize what a policeman is, what a policeman does, how I might feel about one? And he listened very patiently. He said, Yes, I thought about that. And he said, I think that your being Officer Clemens can be a help in making the image of a policeman better, something that people will think of as positive. And I sat for a while, I couldn't make the change right on the spot. <laughs> I said, Deva Clemens, you're gonna have to work this out because this is a way for you to make money and to get your name out there. And I wanted to be a part of the family at that point. I think I made the right decision if I look back over 50 years <laughs> and I finally feel I made the right decision. After a period of time, I was just simply amazed at how many people like Officer Clemens.
1: As you can hear, Francois Clemens is a very special person. And when we come back, he reveals his last meal. What would your last meal be?
0: Had you asked me that three years ago before, I would have probably said a steak or some uh, short ribs you know, and some potatoes and with lots of onions. I'm a borderline vegetarian now, and I, I call myself a chick because uh, I do eat chicken, I do eat duck. <laughs> and I like some strange foods, you know, like okra. I love fried okra, boiled okra. Uh, what I'm a lot, I love greens, collard greens, turnip greens, mustard greens, you name it. So I think the last meal would have to be cornbread, A chicken leg. I love chicken legs as opposed to the white meat. I like dark meat. And then I would probably have some sweet potatoes on the side and some, uh, well, if if there's enough room on the plate, some rice. Okra would be my salad and my green. Am I allowed to say dessert? Of course. My favorite dessert is coconut cake. A white coconut cake on top of yellow layers, three three layers of uh, cake and lavishly put the... (laughs) frosting on the top of the, of the cake with ice cream. Vanilla ice cream. Oh, my God. That would be the greatest meal in the whole world. I've actually had it a couple of times.
1: <laughs> for his last meal, Francois wants cornbread, a chicken leg, sweet potatoes, okra, rice if there's room on the plate, and a three-layer coconut cake with vanilla ice cream. He has lived in the Northeast for decades, but he was born in Birmingham, Alabama.
0: I never changed my taste Southern cooking. And my mother, she was a damn good cook. And she taught all of us five kids to cook. I remember being in the kitchen with her and her talking about what it was that you do with spices and what you do to make gravy, how to cook a turkey. My Lord, I knew how to do all that stuff when I went away to Oberlin. Those uh, guys at Oberlin couldn't boil water. I taught so many, so many of them how to make coffee and tea and simple stuff, but they didn't know how. And there were certain foods that they didn't want to touch like. They didn't like chitlins. Do you know what chitlins are?
1: You know, I don't know exactly what they are. What, are, what part of the pig are oh, they? Well,
0: they're the hog guts. They're the part that stores the refuge.
1: Before, <laughs> That's a nice way of putting you know,
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And people, when I, when I mentioned it to them up here especially, oh, no, how can you eat that? But, you know, the, um, the health food store here in Middlebury ordered me some and I went right on over there and got my tub, as they call it, a tub of chitlins.
1: So, you got some hippie chitlins? Yes, I got them
0: up here. And I came home and I did have to wash them and clean them. Sometimes you have to wash them in, in some kind of mild dishwashing liquid.
1: Chitlins are pig intestines, and when I researched the dish online, multiple websites and articles said that the dish dates back to American slavery, when white slave owners would eat the best parts of the pig and give the slaves the guts to eat. But it turns out that's not exactly true. I spoke with Adrian Miller, who calls himself the soul food scholar. Adrian won a James Beard Award for his book, Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine One Plate at a Time. Let's start with chitlins, which I now know how to spell properly.
2: <laughs> seriously, there are there's several spellings. So don't feel bad.
1: It reminds me of Yamaka. People are like, what is this? You're mulkey. And it's the same with this. What is this chitterlings? Before you cook them, it is crucial to clean the intestines very, very well.
2: Yeah. So the biggest thing is cleaning them. You have to do a very uh, methodical cleaning process. Depending on how many chitlins you have, that can take a long time. So you got to make sure you... Remove the fat, a lot of the extra stuff. We don't have to go into detail and uh, make sure that you wash it thoroughly. And then after you do that, there's really two ways that people make them. The most common way to make them is to stew them. Typically with some spices and onion, some people put in a raw potato to soak up the extra grease. After you stew them, that's when people usually eat them or you can take the stewed chitlin and then dip it in batter and fry it.
1: How do you like them?
2: I like them stewed. I've had them fried. And and when they're fried, it's one of those things where it tastes like the batter. So it doesn't really have a taste. I mean, chitlins have a very distinctive smell, but, you know, the taste is pretty bland. That's why typically people will season either the fried or the stewed ones with hot sauce. And also a typical accompaniment is uh, some kind of coleslaw. A lot of people do coleslaw and bread or some kind of cornbread. That That's a typical kind of pairing with chitlins.
1: Francois says that he'll even use some mild dish soap. Is that pretty common to use soap <laughs> when you're cleaning them?
2: I have never heard that one. Really? I have never heard yeah, that I one. Guess. That's interesting. I'll have to put that one out there.
1: So what is the history of chitlins?
2: Chitlins is a dish that comes to us from Western Europe. So the dish really comes from this tradition called hog killing. And in the South... People would bring their hogs. They would all get killed in the same place and processed. And as part of the processing, the intestines were this you know, ephemeral dish that would only last a certain amount of time. So people would uh, cook those and immediately feast on them. So a lot of the internal organs were treated that way, while the meat, like the hams, the shoulder, and other parts would be smoked for later use. So chitlins came to be known for, um, as a special occasion food uh, tied to uh, hog killings.
1: Everything I read online, and maybe it's not true, and that's why I'm glad I'm talking to you. Everything I read said that it came from the time of slavery where the slave owners would give them the guts and the parts that they didn't want to eat.
2: I mean, um, there's a little bit of truth to that, but um, by no means was it limited to African-Americans. There are plenty of whites who ate chitlins. In fact, if you look at uh, oral histories from enslaved people, they mention the fact that the slaveholders would often demand chitlins. And there's at least one anecdote from an early history where an enslaved person was beaten because they didn't make the uh, chitlins to the uh, slaveholders' satisfaction.
1: It's more of a delicacy than something that they were forced to eat then.
2: Exactly. Now, the other thing that complicates the story that you heard is that um, if you go back to West Africa, there is also intestinal eating. In fact, a lot of cultures around the world eat internal organs and the intestines and the belief there is that it contains the life force of that animal so there's kind of a religious connotation to it there's an african angle to this as well so the the whole narrative that hey this is the le- the masters leftovers their garbage and they forced it on african americans it's a much more nuanced story than that you know the problem with all, a lot of this is that it was just not well documented so we're only looking at reminiscences and we're trying to figure out the story from that
1: Adrian says it was rare for a slave to get much meat at all.
2: What the enslaved people ate was pretty close to what we call vegan today. So mostly during the week, they got um, vegetables that were stewed, cornmeal to make cornbread, and they had buttermilk. Breakfast was being awakened right before dawn, being fed out of a trough with usually buttermilk and crumbled cornbread mixed up. You had to eat with your hands because utensils were a possible weapon. Uh, then you went to do your work out in the field. You came back. That same trough was now cleaned out and filled with seasonal vegetables that were usually boiled. Um, there may be some meat in there to season the vegetables, but you know that was a luxury. That wasn't necess- a necessity. Uh, and then you had water. And then supper was a late night meal. After all the work was done, you just had leftovers from that midday meal. And so it was really only on the weekends that people got fried food, cakes, biscuits, all you know, a lot of the stuff that we think of for Southern food and soul food. Barbecue, fried fish, fried chicken—all that stuff was weekend and celebration food.
1: Another part of Francois's last meal is okra. You said you love okra, and okra is notoriously slimy, which is why a lot of people yeah. don't like it. I, do I you have a do you have a trick for getting the slime out, or you like the slime? First of all, I
0: like the slime. Just tell the truth, Francois. Secondly, fry them in garlic butter or some kind of uh, olive oil. Italian breadcrumbs. And you don't have to cook them very long. I like them al dente.
1: Adrian says okra is one of the foods brought over from West Africa with the slave trade.
2: You know, a short list of things that come from Africa that we know are native to West Africa are things like uh, watermelon, okra, black-eyed peas, hibiscus is native to West Africa. So a lot of the hibiscus drinks come from West Africa. All of these things come to the Americas to provision plantations Because in many cases, the enslaved were allowed to grow their own food on plantations. And um, you you have to just remember, the enslaved were not thought of as human beings. They were thought of as commodities. And so uh, slaveholders were just doing enough to keep people alive so they could make a profit off of them. And what they found out is that when they served the enslaved rotten European food, the mortality rates got so high that they were losing. It was a losing proposition. But they found that when they switched to feeding the enslaved, the foods that they were used to from their part of West Africa, the mortality rates improved.
1: He says in West Africa, the typical meal is some kind of soup, stew or sauce served over a starch.
2: And so okra was something that was used to basically bind together and give a mouthfeel to a sauce because of its uh, mucilaginous properties. And that's one thing why people hate okra, because it's slimy. But that slimy actually gives substance to a very runny sauce.
1: Francois says he loves the slime. That's his favorite part about it.
2: Yeah, he's in a small club with me. I mean, we may be the only members (laughs) because a lot of people hate it for that reason. The okra club. Well, I just wish more people would eat okra. People are going to have to get over okra.
1: I honestly don't know if I've ever had okra before. Really? I feel like I would remember it because people talk about how slimy it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I want I I want to be in the same club as Francois and Adrian. So if you live in the Seattle area and you are listening, if you hear the sound of my voice <laughs> and you know a really good place to get okra at a soul food restaurant or a West African restaurant in the city, let me know. I want to go there. Go to my Instagram, Your Last Meal Podcast, and give me all of your okra tips. All right, time for a quick break, but when we come back, in the South, people fight about the correct way to make cornbread, and the divide has nothing to do with geography. It all comes down to race. One of the components of Francois's last meal is cornbread. I'm curious about the way that you like your cornbread, because I know that there is a debate in the South whether it should be sweet or unsweetened.
0: I have to confess that I'll eat it almost any way you make it. Set it in front of me, I'll eat it. But the way I generally think about it is not sweet. It's plain. So I like that. The other thing is, since I've been here in Vermont, I have started cooking with blueberries. They love blueberries up here. And the first time I made some cornbread, I dumped in, Oh, a lot of blueberries. So when I cut it up and pass it out, they loved it. Oh, Lord have mercy.
1: Cornbread is a staple of Southern cooking, and people take their cornbread very seriously. But it's also the subject of a great debate. Some people add sugar to the batter. Others don't sweeten it at all. And the way you make your cornbread usually has to do with your race.
3: It is so very divided and so strangely different between the two demographics.
1: That's veteran Southern food writer Kathleen Purvis.
3: I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, or as we say here, North Carolina.
1: You might remember Kathleen from our Iron and Wine episode, where she talked about another important, much-debated Southern food, tomato, mayonnaise, and white bread sandwiches. So in 2016, Kathleen wrote a piece for the Charlotte Observer titled... Why does sugar and cornbread divide races in the South?
3: Writing about food in the South means writing about the culture. Food here is a cultural act. And so I wanted to look at why we had come up with these two very diverse ways of making it that were very focused on two different racial demographics. There's a tendency that people who are Black tend to make a sweeter, cakier version of cornbread. People who are white in the South, tend to absolutely resist the idea of sugar in cornbread. Their cornbread tends to be much coarser um, and definitely less sweet.
1: Every time an article about cornbread surfaced, people would argue in the comments section. White people often saying that they would never, ever, ever in a million years put sugar in their cornbread. Even if they don't mean to be racist, do you think that there is a racial line, a divide there?
3: Yes, I do. I do think there is a a hell no, we won't go kind of behind it. And I had put something up on Facebook and my Facebook comments just went bonkers. And it was almost all white people who, of course, those were the people who were following me at the time. And even my own brother was on there saying, hell no, I'll never put sugar in my cornbread. And of course, everybody repeats the famous line, that's not cornbread, that's cake. Almost all of them were white, and they were all extremely defensive about, no, 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 I'll never bend. I'll never put sugar in my cornbread. Pretty strange hill to
1: die on, if that's how you want to choose to. <laughs> right? I mean, you know, the one of the phrases I love the most is, don't yuck my yum. And, uh, yeah, you know, exactly. as fun as it is to debate in a fun way the things that you love, and this is how I make it. It's obnoxious sometimes, too, when people are just like, this is the right way, this is the wrong way. Obviously, there is not one way to eat. And, you know, when there's two ways and one is black and one is white, literally, it does come mm-hmm. across a little bit racist to say that the other is wrong.
3: Exactly. Who are you to say that somebody else's family did it wrong? One of my old rules as a food editor for a long time was I never disagree with anyone's grandmother. <laughs> if you call me and tell me your grandma did it that way, well, holy onto her and may her days increase.
1: because people get really, really defensive. Why do some eat sweet cornbread and others do not? Here's what Kathleen and Adrian taught me. Before about 1900, people in the U.S. tended to mill their own cornmeal. Things weren't industrialized, corn wasn't genetically modified, and you couldn't buy a box of instant cornmeal like you would get Jiffy today. So you'd have a small family farm, you would grow your own corn, and then you would take it to a local mill to have it ground. Back then, the white corn was very sweet. Sweet enough that it wasn't necessary to add sugar to the cornbread. And then as corn became industrialized,
3: they started picking the corn earlier. They started removing the germ from it so it wouldn't go rancid. It would keep longer. And it made a much more industrial version of cornmeal, yellow cornmeal, that didn't have much sugar in it. Instead of work with it, you had to add a little flour and you had to add a little sugar to make it better. And that's where the cornbread mixes came from. And a lot of people who struggled with poverty would be buying that cheaper yellow cornmeal and then adding things to it to make it work better in cornbread. And so that's apparently... Where it shifted at the beginning of the 20th century was the rise in industrial
1: corn. She finds it interesting that Francois, who is an African-American man, grew up with and prefers an unsweetened cornbread. But that probably means that his family stuck with an old original recipe from before 1900, since everyone used to eat it unsweetened.
3: And so I got all these emails from people saying you know, my family's black and we eat our cornbread without sugar in it. Or the opposite, of course, my family's white and we make sweet cornbread. We use jiffy cornbread mix. Well, of course you do now. You've changed. You've been exposed to things, things that were once very isolated to a region. You're not isolated in America anymore. We all pick up everybody's food waste. And so that was a big complaint from people was, well, you're not describing my family. And I would think, well, yeah, but I was probably describing your family 50 or 60 years ago. You go back, you're going to find that that's what they did. Tony Tipton Martin's book, The Jemima Code, great project. where She went back and found all of these cookbooks by African-American cooks. And a lot of them were books nobody was aware of. She has things from the 18th century. And when you look at their recipes, they were also making a form of cornbread that didn't have sugar in it. Once you get past... 1900, that starts to change. What do you like? <laughs> I'm going to out myself here. I like the cakey sweet kind. You like the cakey sweet kind? I, li- I do. I like a little sweet in my cornbread. I really find that I now am so accustomed to a sweeter, softer cornbread that I, I tend to make it that way too.
1: Speaking of sweets, the last thing on Francois's last meal list is a three-layer coconut cake.
0: All you need is Betty Betty Crocker, child. (laughs) And uh, I'm telling you, although I do know how to cook a cake from scratch, it's so simple. Nobody wants to spend a lot of time in that hot kitchen.
1: And that was Francois Clemens' last meal. Pick up his fantastic new book. It's called Officer Clemens, a memoir. The dedication at the start of the book is to Joanne and Fred Rogers.
0: And I love him so much. He gave me a relationship that I had with him which in my mind still goes on. Even though he's dead, he's not on this plane. I relate to him. I talk to him. He helped me write the book that people have enjoyed.
1: Thanks to Adrian Miller. You can follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Soul Food Scholar. Pick up his book. It's called Soul Food to learn the history of Black cooking in America. Do you know the origin of the phrase soul food? Why it started getting called that?
2: Yeah. So the first joining of the word soul and food in the English language Goes back to Shakespeare, um, his first play, The Two Gentlemen of Verona. And in that play, two female characters, Julia and Lucetta, are talking about this uh, male character named Proteus. And Proteus walks by, and Julia says to Lucetta, Oh, knowest thou not that his looks are my soul's food? Pity the death that I've pined in by longing for that food so long a time. So we can take a couple things away from that. One, even in the late or, you know, the early 17th century, wasn't unusual for two girlfriends to get together and describe the guy as yummy. That's one takeaway. But for the next 400 years, soul food is used to express religious connotations. So, listening to a sermon, studying scripture. So, fast forward to the 1940s, you've got a bunch of disgruntled jazz artists black jazz artists because they believe the white jazz artists are getting the most publicity they're making the most money for this musical genre they felt they had created so what they did is they consciously took the music to a place where they thought white musicians could not mimic the sound and that was the sound of the black church in the rural south and that gospel tinge as that emerges in the late 1940s and 1950s started being described as soul and funky soul music then soul sister soul brother soul food
1: Thanks to Kathleen Purvis. You can follow her on Instagram at Kathleen Purvis. Go back and listen to the Iron & Wine episode. It's perfect for this time of year because it's tomato season, which it was last year when I had her on the show. If you have never had a white bread, mayonnaise, tomato sandwich, and a garden tomato sandwich, your life is about to be changed forever. This episode was produced by Laura Scott and me, theme music by Prom Queen, and... This is the last ever episode that Aaron Mason will be in the room for. It's true. You were my original producer from the very beginning. Yeah. And uh, you're moving on to Greener Pastures. I
2: am. This is uh, one of my favorite things I've ever done. It was an absolute joy to work with you, to see how you work, to be a part of helping get this thing off the ground. I'm very proud of it. I'm uh, super impressed with what it's become. I just think you... You do a great job, and the people who listen to this show know that and love you, and so congratulations.
1: Oh, thank you. And we got to go to the James Beard Awards together. I know, one of my fave memories. This will always be our show, not just my show. Mm -hmm. Make sure and follow the show on Instagram. It's Your Last Meal Podcast. We are on Spotify. You can follow us there. Leave a review. It's the nice thing to do. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal.